0: that. And so we've been kicking off 2023 and we've been discussing how this sort of theme and things that we're talking a lot about is take your place. Take your place in the body of Christ to see and know that we are a part of a family. God says you belong. I want you to take your place in the the family of God, the church, and I want you to be mobilized to accomplish great things for me, we know that we all have an expression of that in our lives, in the different places that we, you know, uh, that we maneuver in day to day and week to week. Part of the expression of our purpose happens in our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, in all of these things, but. I firmly believe, and it's biblically sound, that it's when we connect with our place in the family of God and we have a healthy position there that all the health begins to flow out in our life in these areas that God wants to use us in, right? And so take your place. Know that you have a place, that you belong and let's, let's move forward together so that nobody is dismembered or dispositioned or dislocated and out of place. The enemy would love to do that to people, to isolate them. But we're here saying, no, let's draw the family of God together. Let's be close and let's get strong together. And let's advance God's kingdom here on this earth, which is what Jesus has qui- equipped and tasked the church with the mission of doing. Plundering hell. Taking territory for God. Taking territory away from the enemy that he has unlawfully seized from God's people. We're going to take it back, and we're going to take more. And we're going to do that as a family because the church, the family of God, when it's working properly, folks, it is the most transformational organization on the face of the planet. That's beautiful. And God has made her to be that way. We are his bride And so take your place is kind of the theme for this year. We spoke about how God, when we give our hearts to Jesus and we are born again and his spirit comes to live on the inside of us and we are saved, the Bible tells us when that happens, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. I'll just quickly go over this with you because I think this is really good foundation that we need to know. There are really three baptisms the Bible speaks about. There's water baptism. Right, which is a, a, a type, it's a sign, it's an outward profession that we've been cleansed on the inside, that the old man who was dead went down in the water, got washed and cleaned, and the new man who's alive is coming up. And we're professing that publicly, unashamed of our faith. It's an important step. I would say it's non-negotiable in terms of obeying what Jesus tells us to do. It's something that we must take as a step of obedience. There's the water baptism, but there's the baptism of fire or the baptism of the Holy Ghost that the Bible speaks about. And that is when Jesus baptizes us into his spirit. It's not the indwelling spirit. It's baptism by immersion in the fire of God comes upon a man or a woman. And they are endued with power supernatural power to walk out the calling that God has for them in a supernatural way. You see great evidence of this on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were timid and afraid. They knew who Jesus was, but they were worried and nervous about walking out their call. And then when God poured out his spirit over them, they were endued with power, and they went out with mighty ability in God and began to perform miracles for him. You can see it. It's Undeniable. Here were these timid people. All of a sudden, here are these men and women walking in power and faith. That's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But this other third baptism that he speaks about in Corinthians, he says, it is when uh, the Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ. So when we give our hearts, our lives to Jesus, we immediately become a part of the universal church. We are all a part of one family globally here on the planet. I know not every doctrine necessarily subscribes to that or teaches that, but we would say, based on the way Scripture teaches us, that when we are filled with God's Spirit, we all become a part of one family, and we are expressing that differently geographically on the planet and with unique missions in different areas and regions to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ. But obviously, we are a family, but we are all in different places. And that's why we say, let's take our place. But what's beautiful is, is that God's Spirit alone is the force, is the power, is the agent that brings us into community with one another. So we are united in unity at that point as one family. It's a bond that should never be broken. But there are also diversities and uniquenesses Within each and every one of us, which is a beautiful expression of God's creativity and how he has made all of us with a unique purpose and calling. We could go around and we could discuss all of these different diversities that we have. Things that make us different and that make us unique, which are to be celebrated, are to be uh, acknowledged and if they're, if they're done right, they actually work together to accomplish something greater than if we're trying to work separately or divided around differences. We know that we have different races. We have different ethnicities. We know there are diversities around giftings and personalities. How many know that not every personality is the same? Right, some people have a very outward personality and energetic, some people are more thinkers and they analyze, and there's just a lot going on there. And so, we, we sometimes see things in different ways, we have different personalities, different giftings, race. How many know we have different genders? Right, and I, I feel it necessary to say this, I only say this to give you specifically what the Bible says, but there are only two genders God created male and female I'm just telling you what the Bible says that's all I'm saying okay but there are two genders and how many people know we are definitely different (laughs) right we think different we act different we're different and that's beautiful God made it that way there are differences we are we have diversity of age generations varying generations Most of the time, you'll see when God speaks generationally, He speaks about three or four generations. Because typically, that's about the the extent of what's on the earth at any given time. But there's importance of different uh, generations and ages that are unique, but also working together in order to accomplish one mission of moving God's kingdom forward. But let me just let you in on something, and you probably know this. But what the enemy loves to do, he is a master of deception and division, is he loves to come along and hijack something like diversity that God intended for good and actually to unite us for a greater cause and celebrate together as family. The enemy tries to hijack that and use it as a source of division among us. Let me divide them around different things. I'm really here today, church, to talk to you about multi-generational thinking. I'm here today to really dial into that part of our unique difference. But I know the enemy would love to use this to try to separate and divide or create conflict with God's people. A younger generation saying, I'm just so fed up with the older generation. The older generation saying, man, have you seen those young people today? Oh my gosh, they're just crazy. We are different and unique. My parents will never be under, able to understand why I got a tongue ring when I was a teenager. And I will never be able to understand things about them. But that's okay. We're, we're going to be different. But in the end, we are all meant to work together to accomplish God's vision. Multi-generational thinking. In fact, the title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is Building for Tomorrow. Building for Tomorrow. I'd like to just give you a little bit of a flashback, history lesson, if you will, briefly, to get into this. The year is 1945. And... World War II has just ended. There are approximately 140 million people in the United States. That's the U.S. population at the time. After World War II has ended, millions of our soldiers who have been overseas for months are coming home. In fact, in about a four-month window, four million soldiers return home from being gone for months in some cases years separated from their families at that time I just like to pause and say if you serve or if you have served I recognize that a soldier counts the cost before they enlist and they understand that may be a cost that they have to pay and we thank you for that we thank you for that virtuous service These men and women paid that price, and they come home. And something very interesting happens is they are now reuniting with their loved ones and these young families. Over the next two decades, 70-something million babies are born. (laughs) They've been away a long time. I got six kids. People say, you must travel a lot. (laughs) I don't know, you know. It's Katie. She's just you know, wild about me, but uh, it's a problem. I know. Um, so, so seventy something million babies are born, and we call this the baby boom. The baby boom population goes from. 140 to 230-something million people. Here's what's interesting, guys, is that for the rest of time since the baby boomer generation came along, they've completely revolutionized industries just because of the mass influx, right? Gerber baby food was barely on the map before that time, and then it explodes. So as they've moved through generationally in time, they've kind of revolutionized industries. Now, according to Forbes magazine, what is predicted is that now over the next two decades, because of where we are, we are getting ready to see the most massive generational wealth transfer that we have ever seen in U.S. history. Forbes estimates about $30 trillion is going to pass hands in generational wealth transfer, which is great, because now we'll be able to pay off the national debt. <laughs> it's $30 trillion, right? $30 trillion is going to pass hands. But here's what I want you to think about in that illustration. This wealth transfer is inevitable. But what the next generation does with that will be studied for years ahead. Because that will, poss- will revolutionize different industries in different places. But the Bible says, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And I do not believe that it is strictly speaking about material wealth transfer. The question is, as a varying diverse generations of people working together on the earth right now as the body of Christ, what will our future look like? The way we invest in the next generation and the way the next generation receives and steps in, that transfer if done well, if stewarded well by all of us, has the potential to not leave our future spiritually bankrupt in our nation, but to actually position us for the greatest years of prosperity, material and spiritual, perhaps, that we've ever known. And I believe that God wants to do that kind of work among us. Would you agree? How we see multi-generational thinking has a lot to do with this. So I want to take you into a story today that you may know, you may have read. It's a great story about two prophets in the Old Testament, two of perhaps the most well-known prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And when I say these names, it's real easy for you, wait, which one did he say? So I'm, I'm going to sometimes say big E and little E, all right? Big E is Elijah, little E is Elisha. And they had a very unique relationship with each other that I believe if we look at this, there's a wonderful picture of multi-generational relationship and a healthy way to do that, so that the purposes of God are advanced beyond just one generation and multiplied in their impact beyond us. So let's start by going to First Kings 19. First Kings chapter 19. And we're going to read the starting point of this relationship, just verses 19 through 21. God had spoke to a biggie, and he said, I want you to go to little E and anoint him. He's going to be the prophet in Israel in your place after you're gone. So God gave him a distinct assignment, and God spoke to him about his new uh, successor. So verse 19 is where it happens. So Elijah departed. He went from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And then Elijah passed by. So if you can just picture this in your mind, he's sort of coming by while Elisha is on the plow. He's plowing behind the oxen. Elijah comes along, and as he passed him, he throws his mantle on him, which is kind of like a... Scarf, a cloak, sort of a half jacket. It, it was. It meant this was part of the anointing and the calling. It, it had great symbolic meaning and uh, significance. Okay, and so he throws that onto Elisha. He knew what he was doing. It made sense. He's saying, "You're you're calling me. I, you're you're inviting me into a call that I have to accept." Verse twenty. So he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me go kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. He said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and he followed Elijah, and he became his servant. He became his servant. I think it would be helpful to know that the word servant, which describes the way Elisha related to and viewed Elijah, who was calling him, that word servant also is the word that was used to describe Joshua's relationship to Moses. We see predecessor, we see successor, but we see something even more meaningful, we see A good picture of multiple generations, different generations relating to one another. And we've really been able to discover a lot with that plow that Elisha was on. Archaeologists have discovered some remains in the soil and they did confirm, in fact, it was a John Deere. So, some green metal. No, I'm just kidding. Came out of the soil there. So, uh, Elisha is called... Listen. He's called, but he's not developed. He's called, but he's not developed. There's something important in that because they both understand what that implies. You know what happened next? We're going to go further in the story here in a few minutes, but the next part we pick up in the story from here where we just left off is somewhere between, it's hard to pinpoint exact, but somewhere between 6 and 12 years. So Elisha becomes an understudy. And an apprentice, essentially, he's out of the spotlight for the next 6 to 12 years because the fulfillment of his purpose and mission hinges upon him receiving something from the generation in front of him that he needs. that makes sense? So if he just jumped into his calling now, I'm called, praise God, I'm going to go take it and run with it and he circumvented, or didn't honor, say it that way, the relationship that he needed to have with Elijah to prepare him, what would that have done to further his destiny? Very little, right? So the first point, if you're taking notes here today, is that we need each other. We need each other. There are two things, really, that need to happen. Is that, one, the generation in front... Needs to recognize that they have a responsibility of passing something on. They need to embrace that. You know, when we do stuff, guys, to impart and, and to raise up, and, and there are things that we do differently because that's part of our objective. Things that we probably wouldn't do if we were only playing the game for an impact in one generation. But if we're thinking about more generations, it causes us to interact and do things just a little bit differently because we know in our mind, yes, I'm doing something now, but I'm also doing something to prepare for the future. Some of my little kids, they love to follow Katie and I around when we're doing household projects, you know. And when they're five, six, and seven years old, I probably don't need to tell you, but it's It causes you to have to slow down in what you're doing and do it a different way. Now, sometimes, back to those personality types, if you're like me and you're go, 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 you want to knock it out, you want to get it done, right? And you're a mover, and so that's a little opposite of your personality. But I learned over the years, I'm not going to act like I did this well in the beginning because I didn't, but I learned over the years that I needed to slow down... And I needed to involve them in what was happening. I needed to teach and train them. And what's interesting, now that uh, three of our kids are teenagers, they actually do things around the house that they do better than Katie and I do. In fact, Annalise, I mean, she can cook and bake and prepare meals better than anybody in our household at 13 years old. But it didn't start that way. Right? We had to be okay with some messes early on. We had to be okay with, how is that? That was good, honey. It's really good. <laughs> there are things you do differently, but I can't stress enough that when we do that, there is the potential and the likelihood in the next generation, guys, going beyond the place that we actually ever end up stepping off at. That's the way it should be. The better days should be out in front. A church that thinks their greatest days are right now in the time they're living, they are not thinking multi generationally. They're not. In fact, it's a shame, but one of, and statistically this is true, this isn't an opinion, that many, many churches, probably the vast majority, do not actually go on to thrive in a succession of multiple generations. So there's just possibly not a really good handoff. Their best days happen within about a 20 to 30 year span. And you could say that it happens usually within one generation. So we think multi-generationally. There is something about success that is improved when there are generations relating to one another like this. In fact, let me give you some practical things. But you, there was a study that was done in a university that uh, their, their focus was psychology majors. And they did a study, and they proved that, you know, the divorce rate, whatever it is in the United States when couples get married and then, then the divorce rate, but they proved that couples that went through counseling with other married couples who had healthy marriages, that the rate of divorce was actually reduced by one-third in those couples after that. Entrepreneur Magazine says 93% of small businesses that succeed say one of the key reasons why they weren't one of the 80% of small businesses that fail statistics is because they had a mentor or someone who was investing in them while they were laying the groundwork and foundation for their business. So the relationship of multiple generations makes sense, and it works practically, but it is also a very important spiritual principle, and it's something that God does in his family. He is a multi-generational God. Think about it this way. God speaks a promise to Abraham. Now, the promise that he gave to Abraham was so big and so vast, I don't... Suppose Abraham had any thought that this would ever get accomplished in his own lifetime. Because he said, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Now, if he was to think that was going to happen in his own lifetime, him and Sarah would have been really busy, right? (laughs) He had to know. But what does God say? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he puts three generations together and it's hundreds of years after the infancy of the promise of God's purpose for him begins to come into fruition. And then we, des- we see later the descendants are as the sand and as the stars in the sky. I'm just trying to tell you that what God begins in one generation almost all of the time actually isn't even being fulfilled until multiple generations down the road. And the relationship and the interchange and the exchange and the handoff has everything to do with how God continues to multiply and amplify the impact in the results down the road. You remember last week I talked to you about how the power of two or three, and we see when one goes to two, God doesn't use addition. He uses multiplication. But you know what? When God goes down through progressive generations, we also see the same principles in play. God begins to grow the impact exponentially through multiplication, not addition, as successful handoffs and generational transfer occurs. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A multi-generational leader does not expect to spend all of their resources in their own lifetime. I think sometimes that's that's a fallacy, right? That we're heaping and storing things up and that somehow all of what we are gaining and gathering is gonna be used for the work that we're doing. I don't think so. I think that there's so much excess and supply that God wants to put into our hands, that we always have what we need, but there's so much left over that's gonna pass hands into the generations beyond us. I love the way Jesus said it in John chapter four to the disciples, they came and they saw the fields were white for the harvest, then Jesus said, you're entering into others' labors. These are fields that other people have already labored in, that you didn't start the work, you're coming along after some ground's already been broken, but yet there's a place for you to pick up and carry on. You see, I think that works that way, is that as generations, we understand, yeah, there are certain things we might be laying foundations for now, but there are also things that we're building on top of. We're building upon the efforts and accomplishments and kingdom advancements of generations that even happened before us. So point number one is that we need each other. Point number two is we both reach. We both reach. Now, let's jump ahead in the story to 2 Kings chapter 2. This is 6 to 12 years later. And now the time of understudy is coming to an end. And Elisha, little E, is getting ready to take the next place in his calling. Verse 1 It came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And so Big E said to little E, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, don't you know the Lord's going to take away your master from you today? And he said, yes, I know, shut it, keep silent. It's a Hebrew translation. Verse 4, Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho said to Elisha, You said to him, Do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, I know. Keep silent. And then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. And he said to him, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. And while the two of them stood by the Jordan, now Elijah took his mantle. So you see now he's taking his mantle. The first time he put it on Elisha was to represent, I'm calling you. And now Elijah's got the mantle. Now he's putting it back on him again. He rolled it up. He struck the water. The water divides, and they walk across the water, just the two of them on dry ground, and they move into the next place. So here's the big thing that I want you to get out of this. Elisha understands that the relationship with Elijah is very significant, that he honors it, he respects it, and he's drawing something from that that's preparing him for what's ahead. It's not a coincidence that the Bible gives us this same situation three times hey, I'm leaving, Uh, you need to stay here, I'm never going to leave you, I'm staying with you, and then they go, and then it happens again, and then it happens again, three times, it's significant. It means pay attention. So Elisha basically is saying to Elijah, and he's saying in his heart, and I think this is, guys, the posture of the next generation, is they're saying, I'm coming after it. I'm coming after it. I'm pursuing it. I know that God is using you to bring value to me, and I, I honor that. He, he, he was dismissing him. Go on. Go ahead. Go, just, go do your thing now. No way. It's amazing to me because sometimes we think that, you know, that people who are in authority or in places where they're grooming us, sometimes immaturity can see that as a roadblock or a hindrance. Get out of my way. You're holding me back. You're clipping my wings. But Elisha's like, no way. I need everything you've got to give. And until your last breath, I'm not leaving your side. He's going after it and he is pursuing. So what's happening here is that both sides of this relationship, which again really represent multiple generations relating together, right? You could say this could happen in any generational uh, relationship there in time. But that these two relating together, they're both reaching for one another in different ways. Elijah, big E, he recognizes there's a call on Elisha's life and he decides to invest in him. He decides to slow things down a little bit, do things a little differently, make sure he's bringing him along and preparing him so that better days are yet ahead. He's not a one-man show heading in his own direction, not worrying about anybody else around him. I got to go fulfill my mission. He says, no, I'm doing my mission, but something else is happening. I'm preparing another generation. So the Elijah's of the elder generation, are reaching down, but the Elishas of the younger generation are reaching up. I want it. I'm going after it. And as the elder generation, we've got to look at that and say, we don't want to discourage that zeal. There needs to be some refinement and sometimes some maturing. We understand that, but we need to appreciate that passion, that zeal for wanting to get in the game and be a part of what God is doing among us. And praise God, when we're working together, he is using all of us in different ways to accomplish different things. I want to just give you a quick illustration. Can you hand me that there, the red thing? Uh, kind of demonstrate, is it not there? Oh, hand me the microphone. All right, Christian, where are you at? Christian, come up here real fast. Mr. Don, can we move this real fast? I want to give you an illustration of how I see, and I would really like for this to stay in your brain and, and for this to kind of you to remember this moving forward as we have you know, this obligation, really, all of us, to relate generationally to one another. And Christian here, he runs track. And one of the things that he, you were just uh, in state competition, right, this last year, or close to state? Close to to state, state, yeah. And I was giving him some pointers and some tips and and helping him with his game a little bit. Um, But one of the things he runs is relay. And I think a relay race in exchange of a baton is a really good picture to how Elijah and Elisha are relating and really a healthy way for generations to relate to one another in the body of Christ. So I'm going to be the younger because that makes sense, right? Yeah, so I'm running and you're running and I've got the baton. So we're, in, we're both running and I'm reaching and he's reaching. So this is what I want you to see. We, in order for the exchange to happen, we both have to reach. He has to slow down a little bit and I have to slow down a little bit for the exchange to happen. There is a, a moment in time where both of our hands are on this, right? Because if I let go too soon or he jerks too fast, this thing falls. You've probably seen that happen in relay races. Baton falls on the ground, right? But in order for this to happen well, we both reach, we both slow down, and we're both kind of running together. I love that picture. And then there's a point. You kind of pulled that hard, dude. Uh <laughs> Give him a hand. Thank you, Christian, very much. So there's, there's this picture. We're both running together. I'm running my race. He's running his race. But we're really running the same race together. My part is that I have to run. His part is that he has to run. I've got to slow down and adjust a little bit for the exchange. He's got to slow down and adjust a little bit for the exchange. We're both kind of holding the baton together for a period of time. But there is a point where my race is over, and I'm going on to glory. And he's continuing on for the rest of the leg of the journey, crossing a different finish line. So God is using us in powerful ways. But for, for the younger generation, I would say, for, so for us, the, I just put myself in the older generation. So for the older generation, different generations, right, we're investing, we're saying, man, that zeal, that fire, we're going we're gonna to regard that, we're going to respect that, and we're going to temper that. But for the younger generation, listen, so I want to just kind of encourage you a little bit with this, is that part of the responsibility of embracing that call is to really know that the Elijah relationship, it both, uh, it confirms and it encourages, but it also confronts and corrects, right? And, And both are needed in order for that to work properly. Not because of any other reason, but then to try to help the next generation stay on the right path And be fruitful in what God wants to do in and through them. I think it's really good when you look at David's life, right? The prophet Samuel came to David and he anointed him. You're going to be king. Well, we love that. Yeah, praise God. Tell me about my calling. I love it. You know, speak into my life. I'm sure Samuel was well received. But let me tell you another thing about David. He was not a perfect man. We know this. He sinned with Bathsheba, right? Committed adultery. He he fell morally, but let me tell you another thing about David. There was a different prophet that came along in his life when that happened. His name was Nathan, and he confronted David's sin, and he said, you need to repent. You need to get right with God. This needs to be cleared up in your life so that you can fulfill your destiny, and David not only received Samuel, he also received Nathan, so both of those messages were relevant for David to go on to do everything that God wanted to do in and through his life. So again, point number two is we both reach. Point number three, it's bigger than all of us. So let's read the last part of the story in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. So it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away? Elisha said, Let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And so he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it. And he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more. He took old of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah, there it is, that had had fallen from him and he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan and then he took the mantle that had fallen and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, It too was divided this way and that, and Elijah crossed over. So he just went back the way that they just came, if you can picture that. So when the son of the prophets were there from Jericho, they saw him and they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So they saw something there. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Look now, there are 50 strong men with you. They are your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon a mountain somewhere. So they thought they were going to find him, you know. He just like disappeared, teleported somewhere. But he was in heaven, and Elisha knew that. And so he said to them, don't send anybody. Don't send anybody. He's not coming back. But when they urged him, until he was ashamed, he said, go ahead, fine, send him. And they sent 50 men. They searched three days, and they did not find him. And when they came back to him, he stayed at Jericho and said to them, did I not say, do not go? So there's this transfer that happens but I love this part of it because he says, man, you've asked a hard thing. What do you want? He says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Give me, give me double the anointing that's on you. And you've you got to understand that he's asking this because he wants to do greater accolades for God. He, he, wants to, he wants to take it and multiply it beyond what was happened even in Elijah's lifetime. And so he says, you've asked a hard thing. And then they're separated, the two of them. This right here, guys, shows me that what we're talking about on a a level in the body of Christ, there is a supernatural element to this that only God can do. He separates the two of them, and Elijah's gone. He's just a man. He's still going on into heaven. He's gone now. Elisha receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit, but Elijah can't do that. God is the one that has to put that on Elisha. Elijah understands, I mean, it's a hard thing. Well, if God is going to do it, then here's how you'll know. God gave him divine wisdom and insight to tell him that, and so then it passes on to him, right? But I love this because now you see that what we are talking about and generational groups relating to one another to advance the body of Christ, there is an element of this that only God can advance and do through us. Our faith has to remain in his supernatural power working together through all of us and through generations. I could say it this way. At the end of the day, what we're really raising the next generation up to do is not to follow us. It's follow us as we follow Christ. That's what we're trying to do. We're not interested in in our names being famous. We're interested in God's name being famous. I'm not trying to leave a legacy for myself where my name echoes on down through the generations. I don't even care about that. I'm trying to do something where the generations beyond us are going to go on to greater exploits for God and see greater things accomplished because the way we invested and poured into them and prepared them for the years that were ahead we're teaching them to live by revelation to hear God's voice to discern God's voice to obey God and step into the calling he has for them we are instruments that are being used on a little space and time that we get to be on the earth here for and we're passing something on of great significance Elijah was willing to hand it off and Elisha was willing to embrace it and it does say, if you go throughout kings and you track that the miracles that happened in elisha 's life were about exactly double what happened in elijah 's life. Some say there's seven, maybe eight miracles that Elijah did. It depends on if you count the ravens bringing him food, if that was his miracle or whatever and then elisha it says fourteen, maybe sixteen it depends on if you count you know he after Elijah was elisha was already dead, his bones were buried in a tomb, and they went to lower a man who was already dead down into the tomb, and when he touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life, and they brought him back up out of the hole. That's just pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, that's unbelievable. So if you count that one, it's maybe 16. But the point is that Elisha actually did see and perform about twice the number of miracles that Elijah did perform. So it was multiplied. It was expanded. The generation beyond went even further. I love that Elisha turns around and comes back the way he came. You know what that tells me? It tells me that even though he was following Elijah and receiving from him and allowing him to kind of pour into his life and groom him, he knew there was something important to that. He turned around and he went back. It tells me he still had his own path. He still understood my call is still unique. We're just we're just our trains are just hooked together for a time and we're walking we're going down the same road but he went back and went the same way he came which means that he had a he had a different path that was unique and he understood that and then when he went back he tore his clothes which means like i i'm not just all excited because my roadblocks out of the way you know in corporate america a lot of times people do not advance unless somebody dies retires or gets fired It happens in in different parts of the world. But in the body of Christ, we are never limited in what God wants to do in our lives or raise us up because other generations in front of us are pouring into us and grooming us along the way. Elisha tore his clothes. No, I'm not happy that he's out of the way. I'm mourning because this man that was pouring into my life, I'm going to miss that now. But I'm still going to go on and do what God has called me to do. And I'm going to honor what he poured into me by doing greater things even than he did in his own life. Hallelujah. I've always been intrigued by the fact that Elisha did twice the number of miracles. I've always found that significant. Like, man, that's just amazing, right? Elisha, he just he took it to another level. Next level, baby. Yeah, another level. But God impressed something on my heart recently that I'd like to share with you as we wind this down. Is that I began to think about it in a little bit of a different context. God began to remind me in the scriptures how Elijah continues to reappear did you know that on the mount of transfiguration when jesus went up on the mountain you know who the two that were there were moses and elijah the bible actually speaks about and there's some prophetic significance and probably figurative in this too i understand but it says that the spirit of elijah will return before christ comes back again and then there are some that even think that there's a possibility that the two witnesses in the tribulation during Revelation, the spirit of Elijah is very uh, a good position for the fact that that spirit is even there then. All I'm saying is that it's very obvious there is great honor given to Elijah throughout the rest of the Bible. So God began to impress this on my heart. Yes, Elisha did twice the number of miracles. And so this isn't to take away from anything in that regard. But there's great honor given to Elijah. And I think a lot of that has to do with this. He invested in the next generation in a way that produced a 2X return even over what God did in his own life. He actually invested in a way that the greater days were actually still even beyond him. And if we can get a hold of this church, if we can be a church that thinks multi-generationally. If the body of Christ can think multi-generationally and we can let go of personal accolades, we can let go of our own pursuits of accomplishment say, no, you know, what I'm really here to do is I'm here to leave the next generation in position to do more for God than we even did while we were here. I'm gonna invest and I'm gonna reach. And for the next generation to say, yeah, I'm gonna go after it And I'm going to reach, and I'm going to receive. And when we're relating together that way, and it's functioning powerfully, then we are actually expressing part of the diversity in God's family in a way that's furthering his kingdom the way that he's meant to do it. But the enemy would love to hijack that. We have got to fight for unity, and we have got to fight to build multi-generationally. Amen? Amen. So I'll just close with this thought. And I want to point your eyes towards Christ. It's very amazing that Jesus is always center stage. Always. Now I want you to think about some things if we were to compare Elijah as a forerunner to Christ. Elijah and Jesus... Both issue a call that someone else, us, has to accept and respond to. Both Elijah and Elisha were caught up into the clouds. Elijah went on and was taken by the chariot of fire, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, the clouds opened and received him, and he went back and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Both are said to return. Elijah, in a figurative sense, Jesus is coming back all the way. Both left their spirits Now, Elijah Elijah was figurative. It's the anointing passed on. But Jesus said, I am leaving my spirit with you to empower you for greater things. Elisha did twice the number of miracles that Elijah did. And Jesus said, greater things than I have done, you will do here on this earth. I'm just trying to show you that the point of the story is we have got to follow the master. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only when we are following him first and foremost and above everything else, guys, that we can tap into, hook into, and discern the direction of God in our destiny. The Bible says a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How is it even possible then for a man to know his own way? Proverbs also says a man will plan his steps and go his way, but in the end, his own path leads him to destruction. It's only when we hook in with Jesus and follow him that we can begin to see and understand this wonderful destiny and purpose that God has for us here on this earth. And so I'd like to just ask you to bow your head at this time. And as we often do at this point in the message, we would say, first of all, what is God speaking to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this message? The understanding is, is that you would hear His voice as a child of God, and that you would then obey and apply those things to your life, whatever He's leading you to do, but also to know that the strength to do that is found in his spirit as well. And so I pray, Father, right now that you would just speak to us, your children today. Encourage us. Help us to see the direction you want us to go.